0: Welcome to this week's episode of Safe Room, Blade Dead Pixels horror video game podcast, delivering a horrifying new episode every Monday. I'm one of your hosts, Jay Krieger. And I'm the other one, Neil Bow. And this week we're highlighting Monolith Productions' genre-blending horror game and personal favorite of mine, 2005's Condemned Criminal Origins. An Xbox 360 launch title, Condemned Criminal Origins has the player take on the role of SCU agent Ethan Thomas, who's framed for murder by the elusive serial killer he's hunting, The Matchmaker. Now on the run from the law, and maneuvering the mysteriously violent streets of Metro City, Ethan's hunt for the truth may uncover more than he bargained for. And a new addition to the show, every Tuesday we'll be announcing the game we'll be discussing the following week on our Twitter, which you can follow at Saferoompod, and we want to hear your opinion on the game and we will uh, share your comments or thoughts in our episode. So, Neil, for uh, Condemned, I believe this was your first time playing the game, yeah?
1: Yeah, yeah. After some confusion, it has to be said, it was um, a sequel that I ended up playing, not this one. Looking back now, that that makes a lot of sense, because I didn't have an Xbox, um, and Mm. I was outside the PC framework at that point, so, yeah, I I definitely wouldn't have I think because the sequel came out on both didn't it yeah did, did, yeah, yeah i
0: believe it was also on playstation yeah uh not
1: the first game also, was not it no just the second yeah just the second yes that was it which is what confused me i think because it was the first game i saw on playstation and as a result but never really got on with it very well i think it was a time because was 2008 so it was a case of i would play buy games play them didn't connect with me within an hour I'd be like, yeah, I said it back good, done next game and like that and that was just happened to be one of those could have been right could have been wrong just didn't really do it for me um yeah, so over years I I've had this false illusion that that was it I think I bought it on PC and never played it and yes yeah, I just realized when we're talking about it talking about talking about this um, that oh yeah I, I should buy it and have to be on sale thanks to the power of backwards compatibility um, <laughs> and so yeah this week I thought you know I'll try it out and soon realised it was an entirely different game than I remembered and despite limitations and flaws
0: it's a fascinating game it,
1: it's, there's a lot to go into on this one
0: Yeah. And you have the uh, interesting experience of starting with the sequel and then working your way backwards. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, for me, I, of course, played Condemned uh, first and then dove into the sequel. But that would be interesting, I think, to sort of start with the sequel and then see some of the refinements and differences. But then in working your way backwards, I would imagine that, as you said, like the second one, Bloodshot, didn't necessarily click for you. And it'd be interesting to see kind of the contrast in them, and to see the elements that they moved away from with the original, w- working forwards with the sequel and whatnot, and just seeing how it almost feels like they're not two games that are related to one another in a lot of ways, which we'll get into and whatnot, just in terms of like the differing, uh, differentiating in terms of the direction that they take and the elements that they feel to carry over from the original and some of the questionable deviations that they make. But I guess. Before you even talk about Condemned, you have to mention the fact that like Monolith is a developer that knows horror, right? First and foremost. So it makes sense that they would be the ones that are heralding a horror game that blends certain genres and whatnot within that. But it being the launch title, Um, of course, they had done games in the past, such as Blood. They did uh, Alien vs. Predator 2. Of course, they did Fear, which is one of the... yeah. I think shining examples of blending horror with a variety of other genres and whatnot and kind of blending it with this almost John Woo-esque action love, but then having this J-horror aesthetic, things in line with like The Ring or The Grudge that were very popular in that time period. And then, of course, you have Condemned, which came out the same year, I believe, as Fear. And it just shows that they are so versatile, I think, in their ability to take two very distinct horror experiences, but they allow those horror experiences to be very separate and not to be defined by a lot of the same variables, right? I think that those are two very different games and something that we're going to obviously get into with Condemned that makes it what I consider to be, in a lot of regards, like an unparalleled horror game that's in the first person. It doesn't feel like it's a first person shooter, which I think is a big distinction to make when you're talking about especially in the horror space, something that is in the first-person perspective. Um, And that's something that the sequel, I don't think, capitalizes on as well. But at the same time, I think that it's what really allowed this to be pretty distinctive uh, launch title and a surprising one at that. This is probably the last type of game I would ever think would be what what a major studio would be unveiling with a new console.
1: Yeah, but at the same time, looking at when it came out, 2005, a year after Saw, which you know, they very much cited as an influence, um, and being, I don't know, being what the Xbox ended up being, the 360, it kind of works. You know, I, I did mistakenly think it came out in 2007. Yeah, I think there was some weird confusion there. But and then I was thinking, it doesn't really look like a game from 2007. A bit rough around the edges. <laughs> right. And I tell you what, Monolith can't let go of that certain hunch style character model because they, they were still using that in uh, the Middle Earth games <laughs> so, yeah. so yeah it was knowing that though that was 2005 makes it a lot more just distinctive you know it, to see this, what they've done with it it's you know very rough around the edges anyway as a game and how it looks and I was saying to you before the show that this. Several games we talked about recently about um, their age isn't a problem because the look of it kind of works with the lo-fi aesthetic and gives it its own unsettling feel, and it really works here. You know that it just everyone looks like they're made out of wax. You know everyone, I mean, really badly. So in some cases and. Just everything quite deliberately feels like that. You know, it was at that stage of, um, you know, you can tell an American company that said, yeah, well, this is the kind of game we want. You know, this is perfect for us. It, it just is so over the top, daft, serial killer nonsense that predates heavy rain by five years. You know, and doesn't have the pretense of being you know, all arty about it or trying to be arty about it, It, it's like no, we're going to pretty much say we're going to make the most James Wan game ever, you know. And I said, having watched *Malignant* recently, that's even more true now. If if you basically fused *Saw* and *Malignant* together, it's condemned, you know. This this is it. It, There's just so much of it there, Um, and I like that about it. It just because it feels even now some, what, 16 years now? It's Yeah. It still kind of feels fresh in its simplicity. It's like you can kind of forgive its drawbacks, you know, in terms of what it is, and you can tell it's a launch game in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's, as we'll probably get into a lot here, it's fascinating on so many levels and works really effectively. Um, And you can tell that they've had work on, you know, Fear was as beloved as it was. any and us and Predator at the same to so another game. It was just, they were really good at it. And, yeah, I just, I'm looking forward to talking about this in a bit more depth. Yeah.
0: yeah, I think it surprised me that this was a launch title just because it is such a niche corner of games, mm-hmm. right? It being very, not just a horror game, but it being very hardcore horror, I think, in a lot of ways, in that they're not shying away from a lot of the homages to horror films that they are replicating yeah. right i mean the intro to the game is very much inspired by something like david Fincher's 7 right you've kind of got these crime this g- very grainy and decrepit sort of uh, crime scene slides and photos and documents things that have been redacted you see a couple of like corpses pictures of corpses and things like that and it's very much in that same vein and i think that Doing that up front does a good job of sort of establishing what they're going for yeah. and that this – and I think that that leads into what makes this game work so well as it does in terms of like the atmosphere that they craft throughout the entire game, right? I mean, it is very much whether it be a result of why I think that the uh, the wax kind of look to the character models and stuff like that, technical limitations aside – it might be a standout if you were comparing it to another game or something like that, but from that era. But I think that everything fits so well within the world that they've really cultivated, right? Yeah. I think that this is a the game's world, and for all the variety of environments you explore and the various people that you explore, whether in game or in cutscenes, it is the type of thing where everything feels very dilapidated. Everything feels like it has that. Uh, I mean to reference saw again like everything has this sort of like tetanus quality to it like yeah. if you were to bump your elbow against something you'd just get a gnarly infection or something <laughs> like that because the world itself and the environments feel like they're decaying and that kind of trickles out into everything whether it be the fact that the game is so focused on uh, melee combat and a first person perspective and how you assume going in like you start the game with a, hi- with a handgun you might think oh well yeah i'm just gonna like blow through hordes of uh, crazed vagrants and whatnot like I would in a majority of other first person shooter games that maybe tried to capture this kind of look and whatnot but it ends up being something very different and I think if the game had played it more straight like a fear where it's like okay this is an action horror game and this it's a darker but it's still a first person shooter game set in this kind of horror world it wouldn't be as memorable I think in a lot of ways yeah. and it's because of the way that the world's set up right you there's a vulnerability, I think, that comes with the attention to the atmosphere and the fact that the game really does adopt this like man behind enemy lines, uh, if you will, in terms of like Ethan, who begins the game very much as like the person in charge. He's in a position of authority. He's this special investigator. He's searching for this serial killer. And he's quite literally called in to investigate the latest crime scene. Yeah. And he enters this room and there's this mannequin kind of staged with a obviously a dead body Um, and that's kind of like the calling card of the matchmaker serial killer and how you get the first sort of little taste of the csi moments of the game where you have to use this variety of tools and you have to kind of like analyze blood samples and all these things and then the game very quickly kind of like puts a gun in your hand and it's like well i'm still in this position of power and authority and it's really interesting how the game introduces those elements in the opening 15 minutes, and then it completely strips that empowerment. And you don't really get that empowerment back until the very end of the game. And that's something that I think really helps Condemned steer away from ever feeling like fear or just other first-person perspective horror games uh, from that era, at least.
1: Yeah, it's now, today, stuck like in a very weird place where, you know, it's... CSI tech is quite, you know, up, de- up to date and futuristic almost. But in two thousand and five, the minute you see that brick Nokia phone being doing all this <laughs> stuff, you're like, man, this game came out before iPhones sort were of a thing. <laughs> it's like, but that sort of mechanic, you've seen it in so many games since. You know, it's now you wouldn't bat an eye at the idea of, oh yeah, you use your phone to do investigations. That, that makes sense, yeah. But then it's like. I mean, apart from the fact that you don't know where he keeps half this equipment, you know, but it's just.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's very much the Doom Syndrome where Doom the Doom Marine has this arsenal of a thousand weapons and whatnot. And it's like, where does he keep all this shit?
1: <laughs> but I mean, here it's a little more pronounced because they make such a big deal about, like, and it's a really cool idea just that if you pick up a weapon, like a gun, uh, you can only use the ammo that's in it and then it's a bludgeon and that's it or you throw it away and, and that's it that's a great idea
0: a bludgeon that can break yes unlike the other melee weapons
1: yeah which is good because it's you know it doesn't mean you just oh yeah i feel comfortable now that i've used the gun it's like it balances that out as a weapon you know it's like yes it's powerful but it's next to fucking useless after you, you mm. use it bullets you know? and yeah it's really odd then that you have these limitations and then it's like nah But you can also carry a fucking arsenal of equipment in his back pockets. I was like, maybe if you ditched a few of those, and you could put packs of ammo in your pockets. (laughs) But you know, it does make guns more important, you know, and more impactful because they feel like superpowers, you know, compared to most games that have guns, and you you are suddenly hit with the impact of like I could Kill an enemy in one hit, you know, if I hit it right, and it's just, yeah, it, it really does. This game loves to hit home. But, you know, yeah, you, you are going to have to do some violence here. You, you're going to get through this, and even the melee combat is fairly sophisticated. You know, for 2005. Now, yeah. I, I think I might have mentioned this before, but I'd love more games to do what Chivalry 2 does in terms of like first person melee combat in terms of like you know making it into this dance where you you are blocking parrying and effortlessly you know hitting enemies and it's weird because I played through Condemned and the first thing I wanted to do was play Dying Light again because Mm. you know Techland do a lot of the same things in terms of just like makeshift weaponry and it degrades over time and stuff like that. Obviously, now, you know, you can repair that and upgrade them into all sorts of crazy shit, but it it was something I enjoyed because that also had the thing of, like, swing back, you know, dodge back, come forward when you're facing human opponents, you know, and having this little dance. And, yeah, first person so into the idea of like oh you know you've got to be away from your opponent and you've got to be have a distance and it has got to be a gunshot or arrow or whatever but yeah when it comes to the melee side of things it tends to be very much some sort of overpowered super weapon or, or like a punch or a, you know but the rifle sort of thing and it, it's really cool to sort of have a game that subverts that and does something a bit different and you know for 2005 that it's absolutely remarkable
0: In bridging the gap in terms of, like, jumping into focusing so heavily on the melee, I think the game does a really smart job, again, of really putting you in the shoes of Ethan Thomas in a way that it makes the leap from, oh, I'm just going to be law enforcement with a handgun to, oh, no, I'm going to be using tooth and nail and every single thing in the environment I can find to fight people. And enemies are never more than an arm's length away a majority of the time. And that is... I mean, now they're simplistic, but little sort of, like, immersive things, like, when you are entering the crime scene for the first time and you come up to the police tape that's barring the door, you get a brief animation of, like, the character swooping underneath the tape, right? They're lifting it up with one arm, and Ethan kind of, like, pushes himself underneath it and whatnot. And, like you had said, also, like, just bringing up the Nokia phone for the various interactions with Rosa, who is one of the, um, one of the, like, CSI techies back at headquarters, basically who you are collaborating with throughout the game. I mean, just little things like that, it does a good job of establishing that you're in this person's body and that these are not invisible animations that are happening, right? It's not just like, oh, he's got an earpiece and he's talking on a phone. Yeah, Little things that by today's standards, it's like, okay, yeah, those are pretty stock standard in terms of how you're going to facilitate that within a first-person game. But I think for back then, again, it does such a good job of instilling that you are this person and then when it comes to the point where you realize, oh, this gun doesn't have unlimited ammo or I'm not going to have a backpack full of handgun or shotgun ammo and whatnot, it just further reinforces the fact that like this is a person that has gone from that position of power to being very vulnerable. And um, I think the melee combat is something that I detailed it uh, pretty extensively in an article that I just wrote for Bloody Disgusting, which you can find, uh, it's titled The Claustrophobic Horror of Condemned Criminal Origins. And the again, like the behind enemy lines nature of the fact that you go from a handgun, you can probably kill three enemies with it before it runs out of ammo initially, right? It comes to the point where periodically you find handguns throughout the game or shotguns or a submachine gun, but you never have more than a handful of ammo typically, Right. It's very rare that you find a gun that is fully loaded. Usually you have two to three shots at the most. And if you don't make those shots count, again, you can find yourself in a bad way. Um, but it is the smart move to make because it further reinforces the emphasis on melee combat. And you're going to go from a pipe to a two by four. And each melee weapon that you encounter has sort of bare bones but they do have stats right it's kind of like some weapons you can swing faster some are slower but they deal more damage there's that little trade-off and whatnot but i think that it just further reinforces how gritty and sort of just combative this world is right from the jump before you even have that first instance of combat it's a world where this doesn't feel like a gameplay gimmick it doesn't feel like we're just doing this to make it different from our other horror game, or from other horror games in first-person perspective, right? It kind of feels like a continuation of the world that Monolith has created. In that, well, yeah, of course. Who would, who isn't swinging chunks of rebar at a crazed Vagrants <laughs> and whatnot? Um, and I think also what you had said in terms of like the AI. It's like by the end of the seven-ish hours that this game takes, you're pretty good at reading the enemies and yeah. what they're going to do. But I think for a majority, especially again considering how old this game is now, sixteen years. There's enough variety that you can't treat combat encounters, for the most part, mm-hmm. like an afterthought. You can't just kind of, like, charge in yeah. and, oh, I'll just block carelessly or swing carelessly because you can pretty quickly get your bell rung if you're not, like, approaching combat smartly. And furthermore, you get more enemies thrown at you in single instances, which further complicates things and kind of just takes what, on the surface, might seem bare bones, and it adds a layer of not as, not to say like it's Souls-esque, but there is a level of difficulty in this game that I think most people would be unprepared for given that it kind of looks like a traditional first-person yeah. shooter, but of course it is very much not.
1: Yeah, and something that accompanies the the whole you know, mechanics of the weaponry and stuff is, as you said, those animations, you know, where you, know, you go duck under, something or climb a ladder or climb up the stuff, they... It allows you to be vulnerable in that moment, you know. Mm. And the game takes advantage of that on several occasions. One very good jump scare when you're doing an investigation early on is you know you're following the trail up to that, you know, the, the stoop, you know, the, the landing above a stairway like that, and mm. you go oh, okay, the trail stops here, and then of course out pops a, a lunatic to sort of to give you a quick fright, which is like, yeah, cheap, but. Effective, You know, it worked, and it was well-organized in of. And this is definitely where that fear sort of style comes into it, where there's this slow degradation of the world as you go through and there's more and more trippy things happening that you could very feasibly say, well, it's just because it's a game that came out in 2005 and that's probably a technical limitation. And that could be true. But often, and I felt this with fear as well, There are times where you can feel that Monolith were like, well, we we know this might be a problem, but we could turn that into something to do with the story. And I like that the game plays with the idea of, like, is he hallucinating? Are there problems with him? Or is it just that everything is just going to shit and it's just looking worse? Who knows? Is it supernatural? And I like that because, weirdly, for all the American... Silent Hill games that have been it has a lot of that to it you know in terms of like a descent into hell it's um it's it's such a weird mix of things you know I, I know we've just mentioned you know, that it has that James Wan and David Fincher esque grime to it but you know the setup of it is very Hitchcock you know it's like oh man framed for crime must go on the run to prove his innocence sort of thing like that is just you know, Hitchcock made like sixty films like that, you know, and made most of them really good. So it's that in itself is cool to see that idea fused to you know, those more modern sort of directors' ideas and in video game form. So and then, you know, there's Manhunt in there, you know, you know, this came out I think a year or two after, and you know, again you can see the influences are very clear. And but yeah, the Silent Hill thing was most surprising to me because it really does just take you on a very similar descent from you know what is a routine walking through a, a, a decrepit place that's a bit seedy, and it just slowly getting weirder, and stranger, and older. I mean, it's not subtle overall as a Silent Hill, but I think the journey to it is actually pretty well handled you know I think it it doesn't just sort of go in your face that oh this is happening No, this is happening you are now you're thinking twice about what's really going on it's little things like you're you know making an enemy just disappear as you round a corner when you've seen them walk around that corner and then getting no resolution from it you know they'll just disappear that will be it and you won't see Mm -hmm. them and then other times you'll see them do it and you'll see quite clearly they're hiding behind a pillar it's like Have I missed something? I supposed... It makes you doubt yourself by not going for the most obvious answer, and not just going, you know, trying to fuck with your head on the short term. It just does all these little things that make you think something's going to happen, then doesn't happen, and then you know the the enemies just get stranger and more twisted. You know, which in terms of where the story goes makes sense because you go deeper into almost the heart of what's causing it and yeah it's just quite a fascinating thing for me that it ended up being like that because yeah it's so brazenly this big booming shouting American idea of a game you know uh, and like I said very much like an Xbox launch game to me in terms of what I would imagine
0: and yet yeah it has layers Yeah, they're very fast and loose with a lot of the supernatural elements within the game and how obviously the deeper into the game you get, the more they lean into those. And we'll get into like how that's handled in the final hours. But I do think that that is the right approach for a majority of the game, because like you had said, you not only are doubting sort of the reliability of the narrator of the game, but that furthermore funnels into the gameplay, which sets up there must be a handful of jump scares at most Mm. within the game, right? There's not a great deal of them. But again, much like you're referencing James Wan, it's used with the tact that that type of scare deserves. And that's what makes it effective, right? We've uh, (laughs) I probably ad nauseum have referenced the fact that like, yeah, jump scares can be overused, but they can be effective in being expertly um, executed on and whatnot. And this is definitely an instance of that because, again, there can't be more than probably five or six jump scares in the game, but I remember each one of them because there isn't the over-reliance on it. And furthermore, like you had mentioned, there's, and this is an element that I love in this game in that it's very linear, it's very restrictive in terms of the environments you're exploring, but there is a, a quality of the unknown about them that I love and that is sort of like, you will see enemies and you will hear enemies, but you don't always interact with them. And I think that that's very telling because, especially early on in the game, you hear screaming from different parts of buildings or you hear, like, a lunatic muttering or murmuring to themselves and whatnot, but you might never encounter somebody in that one specific area. There's also several instances where you'll see somebody, like, scurry out of a room and they'll run and they'll knock over a shelf and then they'll crawl up a ceiling vent or duct or something and then they don't show up again mm. likewise you'll explore a room and then you'll hear a banging and then somebody throws themselves through a piece of drywall and they've run right at you yeah. which actually made me yell oh fuck out even <laughs> though i've played this game now probably three or four times over the years it still caught me off guard because the game there's no real absolutes in the way in which enemies are approaching you no. i mean of course there are scripted events and whatnot but i think that the game does a good job of balancing not only jump scares, but the approach to the buildup of enemies being introduced. Because like you had said, you see, you might hear them, but you might not always immediately interact with them. And kind of having those like fake outs and then leading up to an actual fight for your life moment really pays off in a game that you more or less know the entire gameplay experience within the first hour of the game, right? It doesn't necessarily evolve more than that. The story progresses, the environments change, but pretty much you're juggling between an arsenal of firearms that are limited and are very empowering when you do find them, given how limited they are. Of course, the melee weapons, which there's a couple new ones that are introduced the further you progress that are based off of the specific environment that you're exploring. And then you have like a kick, you have a taser which gets upgraded, at later end of the game, and then you have like a finisher move yeah. and whatnot. But outside of those, which you all get within the first hour or two, doesn't really evolve on those much, or there's no new combat mechanics to really implement and whatnot. But at the same time, it doesn't matter because it's the way in which Monolith approaches each combat encounter that differs or the fact that they throw more enemies at you at certain moments. Yeah. And I just think that it's an incredible attention to not only restraint, but at the same time, it's the way in which they really orchestrate every encounter that makes it not, at least for me, I did, don't necessarily get burnt out on this game, even if you know a majority of the variables fairly early on. Yeah,
1: I think also key to that is the audio, which um, mm-hmm. loves to play tricks on you as well. You know, you'll hear the running of footsteps, you'll see that you'll hear dust and plaster sort of fall from the ceiling above you, you know. Hinting that someone's running about above you, like I said, just walking past bookshelves and just you know the splat of books hitting the floor because someone's playing trick. You know, the, the enemies love to toy with you, you know, like, and <laughs> just do these little things. And the best thing about that is that you know that you constantly get this unnerving sense of stuff going on, and because these enemies are all you know crazed in their own way. To the point where they, they are not a united force against you, they are pretty much like they're all, for want of a better word, are you know, zombies, if you will. You know, they mm. but they don't see anyone as an equal or united in anything, they will fight each other, you know, they get yeah. away with each other, which is great, you know. Um, and that really feeds into this idea that it's just a place eating itself alive, um, right yeah. So it pretty just makes sense.
0: Yeah, it's the furthermore just shows like the degradation of the world itself, right? Mm. Kind of like a lot of those instances where you're facing off against multiple enemies, I kind of just always take a step backwards and I wait for an enemy to collide with another one and then they kind of duke it out on their own. And it's that thing where it's like, well, well, I'm behind enemy lines, Mm -hmm. but so is the rest of everybody that you're fighting. Um, And that's an element that I think, I suppose it could be chalked up to like Is it just anecdotal on our part where we're like, yeah, that's intentional? Or is it the fact that, yeah, these variables are colliding and then for whatever reason due to maybe some jank design, it can't differentiate between another AI or the player. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter because it blends in with the type of story and the world that they've crafted that it actually ends up working pretty well in a way that it makes sense. Even if it's not intentional, it makes sense for this type of experience, which furthermore, it becomes a layer of strategy, right? I mean, further in the game, you're going to face off against upwards of four guys at a time or five. And seeing how you can kind of like get them to collide with each other is a skill in and of itself yeah. at times. Like timing that perfect taser shot. So one guy swinging and then you tase the guy in front of him, he can't dodge and he gets taken out right away. And it's like, well, I just saved myself uh, potentially getting cracked in the head with a pipe or a paper cutter.
1: Yeah, that, that is fantastic about it that you can just yeah, and I'd say it is deliberate because, you know, Monolith went on to make uh, Middle-Earth games, which, you know, mm. the whole system in there, the Nemesis system, is just like, one of the most revolutionary things that won't get used anywhere else because, you know, Warner Brothers were very smart to copyright that and so right. no one else could touch it. <laughs> but, yeah, it would be well and good if, you know, they let them make another game. But it's been, what, nearly five years. Um, mm. Yeah, yeah. There was a system where it's like, you know, all the enemies hate you, but they're not that fond of each other either. And it's, it, it, you can clearly see that that sort of freefare from what they did on Condemned. And, yeah, I like that. about. It. I mean, it's not like it's the revolutionary of You know, fucking Doom did that back in the day. Doom 2. Right. So it's it's not the... <laughs> it, it's nothing great in that sense, but... As you said it adds this layer of strategy because you can direct them into the line of fire you know you see an enemy with a shotgun you can position yourself to a way that you can draw one enemy in front of that gunfire and they're not thinking straight so they will and and yeah that's the best thing about it so you can take out an enemy as easily as that and uh, you know it gives you that quick breather to sort of plan out your next idea uh, yeah I mean limitations do frustrate at times I think here uh, in terms of the combat because you wonder why you can't dual wield for instance especially later when you come up against the hate and they drop, uh, it drops two sticks then you can only pick up one and it's like well oh, what's the point <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> but, uh, but you know I think there's just limitations at the time stop them from like doing a you know, gun in one hand bar in the other and you know, it, then you've got a whole other option and it just it would have sent the game down a very different route so yeah it I think you know they did the best they could with you know the system they had you know to be a launch game and to have you know this enemy system with this these mechanics that are very melee based yeah it's admirable you know they got it working as well as they did
0: I was really surprised on this latest replay just how versatile the AI can be at times. Again, definitely not perfect. It definitely oh shows some wear in terms of like in the 16 years since it was released, but at the same time I still found myself getting caught off guard by the fact of getting faked out by one of these guys where you hit one of the lunatics and then they turn around and they feign an injury, but then you get backhanded with yeah, whatever they're holding. That,
1: that was so smart. I, I mean, the amount of times you get caught out with that even prepared for it is because it's yeah it, the animation is really good.
0: Well, it's good because they play it both ways, right? Yeah. It's either you're going to get backhanded or they turn around like they've recovered from the injury. Yeah. And it's really difficult to spot the difference. It's which is key to that. Yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, there are certain enemies that will literally, like as you said, they will spin around from being hit and then go full 360 uh, and just come back around to swing back at you again and it catches you out and it's very hard to train yourself to block properly because the block is temporary you know it's like it Mm. it doesn't hold it it's literally like you press it it's up for a a, a second or two so you have to time it properly like you you should and that's what makes it endlessly rewarding as a combat Mm. mechanic because you can get caught out so easily if, you, if you're getting too cocky and you think you know what you're doing. The minute they throw two different types of enemy in there, or two different weapon types in there against you, you suddenly got a lot more to worry about, and your concentration can slip. And what was an easy fight before can suddenly catch you off guard. And before you know it, you've lost nearly all your health in seconds. You know, and which is perfect for, you know, for the way the game's going.
0: Well, I think also there's these moments where I completely forgot that this was something the AI does periodically where if you deal enough damage to them and they probably only have one more hit left in them, they'll take whatever weapon they're holding and they'll throw it on the ground and rage out and they'll run straight at you and they'll jump on you and then you have to do this kind of like flicking of the D-pad whatnot to get them off. But in doing so, it uh, obscures your view or it blurs your view briefly. Yeah. Um, and that moment, again, that was still an oh shit moment because I completely forgot they do that. And it caught me off guard because it's this is the thing, like the A.I. only has probably four or five routine reactions to getting hit. Mm. But the infrequency with which they actually like there's no pattern to how they do those, how they cycle through them. Yeah, perhaps maybe there is, but it's concealed so well that I didn't realize it. And something that might be more of a video gamey moment, but it still adds to the tension, especially when you're fighting more than one enemy, is when there you kind of like fight different styles of enemies. But for a majority of them, it's like there's the 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 regular guys, which can take a couple of blows. There's the like the bigger guys, which of course can take more damage. There's like these weird crawling guys. Yeah. But the bigger guys, they can eat sometimes one or two shots from a shotgun at point-blank range. And that is very much a video gamey thing. It's like, okay, I would have blown the back of this guy's head <laughs> off with the shotgun. But the unknowing factor of that ties into that sort of empowerment angle that I think is so well done in this, in that you have this shotgun, you pick it up, you're like, oh, I can just blow through these guys. But All of a sudden you have two shells and you've got two guys. There isn't always that guarantee that you're gonna drop both guys with those two shells. And I think that again, it maybe it breaks some of the more grounded, immersive stuff that they've done in this world and the sort of the visceralness of combat. But at the same time, it makes that game that much more tense with combat that is only ever, again, an arm's length away, even with guns, because ammo is so scarce. I'm not going to be taking pot shots from across the subway station or from across a classroom no. because there's such an unknowing quality to everything.
1: Yeah, the other thing about guns that's interesting is because you can only hold one weapon at a time, and often you need to have a crowbar or a sledgehammer or an axe to access certain areas, you know, break down certain so doors, locks, etc. Which means you have to leave a gun behind sometimes. It's like, yeah. I mean, you can go back for it, but often when you get go through certain areas the door shuts behind you and you can't go back and that's it so you're constantly having to think what will be the more useful weapon to have in this next situation and when you're fresh to it that's quite exciting because you're like oh well i don't know do i try and keep the gun as long as i can do i you find a way to use it before i get to this but and yeah so as a result you're always hoping to keep hold of the weapon that might be useful the crowbar opens up certain lockers and things for instance and it's yeah it saves you backtracking if you've got the right thing but the game you know is very smart in t- terms of deciding when and when where you, where you should have weapons I mean bafflingly between chapters and certain load points it takes your weapon away and you're back to square one again and it's like well, why you know I had it so so, but you know that's just again feels like they wanted it to to be more episodic and just sort of have a reset button for those moments but yeah it it does take you out of it occasionally you're like well I had a weapon a minute ago why don't I have one now it's like especially when you have like a shotgun with five shells in it and you're like you really could have used it in that next session. It's it feels like you're just kind of cheating me yeah
0: One thing that I will say in terms of the guns is that... Actually, two things. But in response to that, like one thing that I found myself doing periodically because everything that you pick up and put down, the enemies can interact with too. And that's a very subtle piece of the design that I think gets overlooked because it really does make you second-guess yourself after a certain point when you realize that in terms of like, okay, where am I going to be dumping certain equipment? Where am I going to be picking up certain things? But also, when it comes to firearms... I found that there were a couple instances where I would have my choice, right? I would have a crowbar and I would pry open a gun safe and there's a shotgun and it's fully loaded and I already had a handgun, though. Yeah. So I'm going to ditch the handgun, obviously. But what I learned and what I started doing in this kind of like routine was I would unload the gun that I had previously. I would just fire off and waste the ammo so that way an enemy wouldn't sneak up behind me and grab that and use it against me. And so that was one of those little things that... I don't necessarily know if they had envisioned becoming like a go-to strategy for playing the game but it sure as hell was one that i adopted moving like and when i realized that an hour into the game i was like well i have to be sure to do this all the time now because otherwise there were definitely a couple of times where i got gunned down with my own gun that i had just had like 30 seconds ago
1: yeah it is mad the first time that happens where you see them pick up so i mean They literally will just rip weapons off the wall much the same you do and that's great because again it feeds into this idea of like anything goes you know in in this world and as we said while the AI patterns are when you think about it quite limited the way they're structured and I think it's both to do with the environments they're in and uh, what they're paired with in terms of like situations always make that different and feel different you know it's like you don't until the end you're not really coming up against many situations where you're having enemies just come up to you and try to attack you over and over again and there at least it feels like you know you're in this descent into madness whereas the rest of the game it structures it in terms of like where you are what's here how bad is this area you know and Story, you know, when certain characters talk about certain places, they're very much like, "Yeah, this place is fucked up. You don't want to be going there." Like and <laughs> right. and naturally, when you go there, it is worse. The enemies are weirder, and more twisted, and less human than the, the the things you've been facing before. So it all it all revolves around this whole degradation and supernatural thing that increasingly knocks into the game's, you know, mechanics and look. It's, yeah, I, I, it's, it's a strange one to, to describe sometimes because you just go into it for so long thinking that it's just going to be like, yeah, it's a grimy crime thriller and things get a bit weird and like that. But it really does just drag it further and further into this visceral nastiness Whilst also being delightfully melodramatic,
0: I was gonna say, I think it works better for as much as I like Condemned, I think it works much better for me in terms of being the nastiness being reflected in the environments in the game world itself. Yeah, the melodramaticness of sort of the narrative it works less and less for me the further into the game I get and the more yeah. often that I play the game, uh, which we can detail uh, in a minute, but. Like, I, I love, and especially what you're saying, basically, this kind of like descent into hell, whether it be a, rep, a physical manifestation in the world of what is uh, happening to Ethan in his subconscious or just his mental state and how that degradation is being reflected, right? Because you yeah. go from abandoned buildings to subways to department stores to like a school, and things only get progressively weirder. And that's reflected both in the cutscenes, which gets into the melodrama sort of of like, okay, he's having these visions and then. Some old friend of his father shows up, uh, Van Horn, who says, oh, you've always had this, these special powers and the FBI has been looking into you and all this stuff. And he's got this uh, special powers that give him like an insight into criminals mindsets, which makes him the ultimate detective, basically. <laughs> but then also he has these uh, supernatural, like this supernatural physicality to him, which explains why he can get knocked out like 15 times over the course of seven basically, hours and yeah.
1: remember his own name <laughs> the, the description of it is basically like your skeleton is hella thick and that's it you can take a beating basically yeah listened to that and I just thought again it was like this is a fucking James one game <laughs> there's no doubt yeah. about it it's just like everything about it is just embracing the ridiculousness of, of the premise perfectly I love it yeah and it just you can't help but be endeared to it when it does stuff like that and even when it does just go full on what the fuck are you doing later on it is amazing in that sense because you're already invested in that that it's already going down this particular path and you know you don't have to take the story seriously because you know you've watched enough horror film to know that you can't trust this guy and you know that's not going to be right and you know there's going to be some sort of twist involving the killer and it's just it's all really warmly familiar stuff and by the time you get to the end of it it's like eh, that's fine that's good I like that you know that ending's coming by the way it's like cause yeah. it's like come on yeah, it ain't ended like that Yeah, you were affected by that situation you're special for a reason of course of course yeah, you would be Affected badly by this whole situation. Also, I love, you know, 2005 video games, you know, not known for their nuances and subtleties in plot. And (laughs) the greatest thing I just think is that I love how he's seen as this. Great detective, uh, but the minute anyone provides the flimsiest about the evidence that he might have killed someone, it's like, yeah, oh, no, we don't fucking believe you. Fuck off. Like that you say, you're all
0: fucking. <laughs> we're gonna hunt you down without question. And it's like, yeah, brilliant. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> uh, I will say, they at least they lean into the melodrama at least, right? If they were kind of like, because the condemned starts out very much presenting itself as this very grounded, gritty horror, psychological thriller, but once they go supernatural, they don't ever look back, and it would be very different, I think, if they tried to juggle both of these things, whereas at least they are dedicated to both halves of this experience. Necessarily, it doesn't work for me when it goes full supernatural over the top as much as it might have done back when I played it uh, for the first time, but I at least am thankful that it doesn't feel like It is very much a game of two halves in that regard, narratively speaking, but it doesn't feel like they're struggling to juggle between the two throughout the entire thing, which could make it feel a little jarring of like, okay, what are you really trying to do here? Are you trying to make this be super serious like a Fincher, or are you trying to go full supernatural, psychic, like, um, what was that film, Suspect Zero, where it's kind of like there's this psychic and now we're hunting serial killers, but the person that's killing serial killers are serial killer, like... They're very clear in the two halves that they're trying to tackle, which yeah. probably does this game more favors than it could hurt.
1: Yeah, so because it, as you say, because it leans into that, it, it earns a pass. Like I said, it, it was a game in 2005, and bar the old game, at that point, games just really did not have great writing that often. And this is a game that definitely occasionally suffers from that. Yeah. Um, Monolith are very much better at hiding the deficiencies in the game when it comes to mechanics and aesthetics and things and dressing them up as like part of the experience. But writing is harder, you know, and it's always been a problem with games. But I think you can get away with having, you know, sub-tier dialogue and story in a video game because... What you lose there, you're getting in being in the experience. The absurdity, of something that doesn't make any sense, is so much better when you're the one controlling it. You know, and mm-hmm. in it, you're in it. it. It doesn't work if it was a film. That same, that exact same story, it would be a cult classic in all the worst ways, because mm-hmm. it would be awful. Yeah, you know, it would just, <laughs> it would be terrible, but as a game it works because it's it leans into the game side of the absurdity of it or are really like well yeah of course this will make sense and i'll say one thing i know we're going to get into the ending in a minute but just fuck it yeah let's get into the ending that's the best way about it we're getting there anyway
0: let's talk about the ending and then i want to reel it back for a second ask and pick your brain about the csi segments because okay. those are very much a standout portion of the gameplay side of things that we haven't talked about much and i'm curious to see how you think that they are since you've just come to this game okay. fresh well okay. let's continue no, no, that's fine
1: we'll, we'll actually do the csi thing first just sorry sorry for blue balling anyone there but you know, <laughs> 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 but yeah going back to the csi because i think talking about the ending is perfect at the end yeah. um yeah, the CSI stuff is great. Like I said, there are elements of that in other games that came later that are nowhere near as good. You know, it's a simple system. It's like, point here, arrows tell you what to do here with the camera, you know, follow the trail here. I like that they start changing that up later in the game where you know, you're following a forensic trail with the UV lights and... You can still get jumped at any moment, and you're, you're vulnerable in those moments because you can't carry more than one thing at once. And that's where it feels smart. Yeah, whereas I may have complained about it before about oh, what, you know, if you could carry a weapon in one hand and the forensic tool in the other, maybe it's not such a problem. But here, at least, you can you know, have this vulnerability that feels perfect for the world you're in. And yeah, just the I would I like more of it but again i get why not i get that you know it came out in 2005 at the beginning of the console cycle naturally it had things that probably could have been bigger and better but never were going to be because of time and money and knowledge you know all the things that had to be done but yeah I, they're good enough that you'd want more of it and more detail in it and um I know there have been games in the years since that uh, have taken a lot of the ideas on the show here and really delved into them. I mean, the Sherlock Holmes game by Frogwares, or even The Sinking City, uh, the Lovecraftian game, takes a lot of that, you know, looking at the detail of, uh, of investigation in a whole new way. The Arkham games, you know, the Batman Arkham games, again, just have a bit more of that. It's, not you know, it's not I'm not gonna say it's the first game, but it in terms of console games, it ends up being a trendsetter, I, I feel in that regard, because it's you know, for the many things that we said before about this, you know, while it's inherently a first person game, you know, and a first person shooter in some ways, it's not. It, it, and the combat isn't the only reason why. the, the other reason is that you're having all this investigation in many ways a lot of what Condemn does predates the walking simulator genre you know if you will you know, I don't want to have to call it that but for ease of use because you know you're investigating things and looking into things uh, but it's married to an era of gaming that is still very much mud and the violence of things and you know you have to blood, court, guts hitting things killing things great like that so it's both things it's like it's the last echo of a certain period and you know the future echo of another that's wonderful you know and i think the csi stuff is the perfect embodiment of that it has everything like that it feels timeless and dated at the same time it's really odd to think of it like that but it really does it's because like I said, you want more of it because it feels so simplistic compared to some more modern examples, but at the same time, I can't think of another game that really does this in first person like this that really goes into it without signposting. You know, we've talked about it before, but this game really doesn't signpost much,
0: you know, no, you, you're not at
1: all, and it's Probably credit to the level design that you don't get lost that often, despite some really mazy levels and really samey dark dreary levels. You kind of figure out and find your way around. It pushes you in the right direction a lot of the time, without you really realizing it. And that is when you think about a lot of games today, which have to pretty much tell you to the letter where you're going. It's quite frankly fantastic to, to have this game just gently push you away and you still get it despite you know many years now of having your brain trained to be thinking about the more modern way of playing and the CSI stuff uh, is you know is less that now that that you sort of feel comfortable with because many games have copied it and, and done it better you would argue but like I said married to the way they've done everything else it's this whole different experience.
0: I remember a lot of criticism around the game, and I even had a criticism of that same criticism in terms of it being very hand-holding, right? Because you're basically dropped in that area of a crime scene or where there might be some evidence, you're always cued, and then it's up to you. Basically, you once you're in the right area, you press X, and then it brings up the right tool yeah. automatically. And I remember initially being like, well, this is very hand-holding, when it is, but at the same time, it feels perfectly in service with what they're doing. Yeah. It doesn't bog down the pace of the game at all, right? There's definitely – and I again, I haven't played the sequel in a number of years, so take what this with a grain of salt. I remember in the sequel, you have to pick out the certain tool to use per crime scene. And I remember that dragging out that experience to a detriment to the overall game and whatnot. Whereas this – it's streamlined and it's handholdy, but I think it's perfectly serviceable for what it is. There's just enough interactivity, and like you said, scaling interactivity. Initially, you're in a room, there's never going to be enemies in it early on. You take out that tool, you find the, d- the evidence, and then you scan it. You have a brief moment with Rosa, and then you move on. Yeah. Later in the game, though enemies will run up to you because in terms of the size of the crime scenes you're investigating get larger and larger. And again, it is still hand-holding. You press this button, you get the exact right tool. It is easy. It is not easy to go off the beaten track, basically, in terms of like where you're exploring. But at the same time, again, it's in service of keeping things moving along nicely. There is that scaling of interactivity, but it further reinforces like this could have very easily been some brief uh like button mashing sequence like press a a bunch of times to use this tool or something like that something that would almost feel like a chore or something that would present itself as being very sort of um like oh here's an icon that pops up to do this or that in the middle of the screen you have to press this and then this and then this that button sequence will let you use this tool which would almost sort of just be dragging out this very simplistic interaction as it is to a degree that, again, it makes it feel more like a chore. Yeah. Whereas the fact of the matter is, is that it's so streamlined, it's so straightforward so that it doesn't feel like a chore. And if anything, it for the first half of the game, at least, it feels like a breath of fresh air that yeah. you very rarely get throughout the game. And I think, again, you know, I've had my qualms with the direction that the plot goes and how some of the writing maybe goes awry. I think the character-to-character interactions, though, that are the more grounded elements of this, I think those hold up pretty well in a way that, especially, like, the dialogue with Rosa and whatnot and how she's a little playful with you. Ethan is constantly exasperated and whatnot. (laughs) Again, like, all the power the FBI is throwing at him with a basic accusation of, oh, this FBI, this agent freaked out and killed some of our own. We're throwing everything we got at him. (laughs) Uh, And so he's clearly like, oh, what the fuck? Everything is awful. My life is falling apart. But I think those brief moments of dialogue, there's a little humor there. At the same time, it it helps establish two prominent voices within a world that is mostly accusations and violence. Yeah. Um, so I find that those brief moments, even if they are hand-holding, they do a good enough job of letting the player stop, catch their breath, further immerse them into that character's role in this world, even though it is very at odds, I think, with... Uh, what you would assume his training was. I can't imagine there was like much pipe swinging and blocking in his uh, (laughs) SCU training. But I think it further just facilitates like when this game is focused on skirting the expectations of what you would assume that a first person perspective horror game would be, I think it does a much better job of sort of stepping outside of what players are Assuming, Or what that sort of like nowadays, our brain has very much trained us what to expect from those types yeah. of things. And in that regard, I think the CSI segments in the original game hold up pretty well. Because, again, from what I remember with the grain of salt in the sequel, there's more freedom that the player has in those instances. But those instances then can end up being dragged out further because you're exploring a bigger environment for one hidden piece of evidence that can make what should be a five minute interaction become a 15 minute game of hide and seek to the degree that this is no longer a reprieve from duking it out with the vagrants. It's more about like, well, where the fuck is this one blood splatter? Like it's on the ceiling in the corner of this room. (laughs) Why the fuck would that be? Those types of things. It doesn't feel, I guess it doesn't feel like it's a real crime scene. It feels like it is very much a hunting for a piece of evidence that is not in a part of a room that would really feel like a crime scene, I suppose. Mm.
1: So, I think that takes us quite succinctly to the ending, which, uh, or the end period of the game, which, you know, has a house full of these very, you know, over the top uses of your criminal equipment. <laughs> um, where you're not following spl- splatters, you're following an endless ream of text to find different connecting rooms to. Yeah, I'm still not sure. Um,
0: <laughs> <laughs> They're, they're like key words of dialogue yeah, that have to do with all this. It gets a bit ropey towards the it, end. I
1: mean, it, which is, like I said, I think it's wonderful that it does. Um, I think where it suffers is that it doesn't fully embrace it, nor does it explain it to be either truly absurdly silly or serious enough to matter. Into an impact the story. And, you know, I was reading the synopsis for the sequel and where that ending takes things. And I'm just thinking, I wonder if I fucking like the sequel. Uh, Because (laughs) just, it's the silly stuff. It just takes it all the way there. You know, I don't want that. I like the idea that there's a bit of ambiguity to this all the way to the end that even though you are in increasingly supernatural situations and they're telling you that there's some entity that is causing all this stuff I mean they don't really tell you properly they sort of hinted it but you know and they just throw you into a fight against it and <laughs>
0: yeah
1: but that fight against the hate uh, I think it's Doug uh, does um, which is honestly it looks like the most new metal thing going and
0: yeah it really does Looks like something from a corn album. Yeah,
1: which is brilliant, again, because it just perfectly works with the of the era it came out and the kind of game it is. But the fact that it's quite a normal battle until you get close enough to start ripping metal that's been infused in him off him and the bit at the end with the jaw and just pulling the metal out of the face and stuff like that, it's like, yeah, that's that feels perfectly, you know, if it was a film, that would probably be the highlight, you know, if you're watching... You know, if you oh, could yeah. do that in practical effects, you know, just ripping someone's metal-infused jaw out like that. That's, yeah, that's a standout moment. But you can then see the, the cliffhanger coming from there.
0: Right. Which is yeah.
1: that... Uh, everything they've hinted at before then, um, when you travel... you know, He travels back in the car with Van Horn to find out... You find out that Van Horn is... The father is that right? Of this of the, the uncle, kid? I think. The yeah. uncle, yeah, he's related to the you know, to a Killer X. Again, such a new thing, but uh, <laughs> yeah. So obviously that doesn't go well. It's the whole oh I didn't know this, I couldn't control him, blah 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 like that, and then we can't kill him. And yeah, just that's all daft. Um,
0: there is a very sort of race to the finish line ending to the game that introduces. A brief morality element which you're kind of like this has not been a staple of this game up until then and in the end it doesn't really matter because no matter what decision you make it kind of has the same outcome yeah. in terms of this character getting killed but also i think uh, so i, I want to back up just a moment for like the farmhouse right this is the yeah. culminating set piece and it is by far the most ropey supernatural part because you know you take this crime scene which has been very grounded in blood splatter, sweat samples and now you're chasing these crazy UV light scriptures across the house and that's very over the top but the the setting still feels tethered to the reality that's established in the beginning of the game in a way that it doesn't lose me completely. Narratively speaking, I'm kind of over it at that point because I'm like there's a serial killer hunting other serial killers, there's a a a supernatural entity that's been stalking Ethan basically throughout the entire game that is now responsible for everything. But it never loses the gameplay elements that are established early on. It all has been tethered to that. And it's a creepy house. It's filled with the lunatics and whatnot. But at the end of the day, like, the narrative loses me. But I think gameplay-wise, again, this speaks to the differentiating uh, factors between, like, the medium of film and the medium of games is that if it was a film and it lost me narratively speaking I'd be like well I don't give a shit about any of this anymore whereas with the game I'm still engaged in the interactivity portion of it which is a huge testament to why I think this game holds up really really well like that 16 years later
1: yeah I mean I'm glad it doesn't go for the easy route which is the way it starts hinting at is basically to say that it's all in your head and I say, oh it's you right. <laughs> it's you you are really the one doing it all and like that because it really does lean into that for a while uh, right you know, even to the point where they're pointing out you know, his special bone illness it's like okay okay we get it there's something wrong with him it's probably him that's a killer then blah, blah 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 but then it turns out no it just literally is just someone who's like yeah I just wanted to be the killer of killers you know and you know that confrontation is fun you know when it's all figured out and he you know uh, Ethan basically puts himself in the place of the torturer the the serial killer that is going to be killed like that and you know ambushes very badly you know again you know this great detective who so far has managed to not pull off an ambush lose his gun get framed very easily for a double murder and yeah it's just and loses his flashlight (laughs) yeah and loses his it just I don't see where this great detector thing's coming
0: from. (laughs) It's like, it's all with that. It's like, they're overselling his psychic abilities a bit. I think it's like, I mean, if not the help of Rosa,
1: where would he even (laughs) go throughout this game? It's like, yeah. And yeah. Yeah.
0: One thing that you mentioned that, I mean, we were joking about it, but I got to come back again to two things that we, uh, that I forgot to mention in regards to the presentation that, I think, again, this is what kept me so engaged with this game, even when narratively it lost me, right, mm-hmm. is because there's plenty of loopy and ropey things that yeah. occur at the end of the game. But I think two things are important. One of them, which I failed to mention earlier, is with firearms, you don't have an ammo hood that pops up, right? right? it's And this leads into my next point. But you have to manually check the magazine or check the breach of the gun to see how much ammo you have, which again, is a little thing we've seen in plenty of other games, but for that time period, it did a really great job of putting you in the role of that person, because especially when you pair that with the behind enemy lines nature, your adrenaline's rushing, if you're not counting the amount of rounds in a gun, you would quite literally have to do that. Um, And that leads into the next thing, which is that he loses or he breaks his flashlight at a point in the final chapter. And that leads to the only light source he has when he's running around this farm in the middle of the dark is the fire gets started at some point. And you come across 2 by 4s which you've had throughout the game, but these 2 by 4s are on fire. Now that doubles as not only a weapon, but a light source. And that's an element that I really, really like because yeah. it not only... And I think it holds up pretty well in terms of like the graphical fidelity of the game and whatnot, even if the character models are definitely uh, not a highlight of the experience. But <laughs> that's one of those little things that has held up well. And it, for the time period, it displays the sort of graphical leap from one generation to the next, and that this doubles yeah. as a light source and a weapon. Um, but that's another thing that I think really fuels, and I touch upon it in my Blade Disgusting piece, one of the elements of this game that It never lets you feel completely like a super soldier, even if you are able to get knocked out a dozen times and there's no repercussions from that and whatnot, or you're able to get hit with a pipe and you can just kind of shrug it off. It does a great job of never letting you feel like, whether it be the ammo limitations or how many hits you can take, it just, I'm never allowed to feel like I am this supernatural super soldier, which you definitely, and we'll talk about it briefly, because again, I haven't played the sequel in a long time, the sequel loses all of that, in that you quite literally feel like a super soldier in most regards in that. And in playing the sequel, if anything, it makes me appreciate the direction they took and the vision that they took with the original game that is really with the player up until the final moments of the game. Yeah. From a gameplay perspective, at least. Yeah.
1: I mean, uh, so looking into the sequel, I kind of wish maybe they just bolted on a bit of that towards the end of this and just fully embraced the silliness and, and had the whole cult thing. Like, and had it revealed there rather than have a whole sequel. I get why, you know because then you know there's a sequel to work, but, but it just means that you have a whole different game tonally because you know you're going from one extreme to the other. I that's not always a problem, you know, and you can make that work. I mean, I, it, in film terms, for instance. That's where a lot of people have a problem between say the Matrix and the Matrix reloaded is in the first one's about the journey from normality to something more magical and amazing. The second one is superhero movie, you know, and with all this deep lore and explanation and stuff like that. And that's basically what Condemned 2 ends up being. And like yeah. that's fine if you do it right and it works mm-hmm. and you still kind of keep consistent. But when you're making the lead character, the Dovakin of Crime <laughs> Alley, it doesn't really help. <laughs> it's like suddenly you're like, no, no, no. Now you're just pushing it way beyond like absurdity. And yeah. sure, that that's a personal taste, I'm sure, but it it just doesn't seem right considering the journey we go on in, in Criminal Origins.
0: Yeah, so Criminal Origins ends with you get this morality decision. You find out that Leland, who's the nephew of um, Van Buren, and he's basically the serial killer ex that you've been hunting and whatnot, he's in the back of your car once you've killed the hate, and you think like, oh, we've escaped. But no, this last threat remains. Ethan has to decide whether or not he's going to kill him or let him go free. And if you let him go free, you should know by now that we discussed spoilers here, so spoilers... If you decide not to shoot him in the face, he shoots himself in the face anyway, so it's kind of like, what the fuck is the point of introducing this morality decision? It, it's not reflective of any other element of this game, because that's never a thing. Uh, so I don't know why that fuck that's included, especially when it's very clearly, it's there's no player choice in this game, and they're telling the narrative that they want to tell and the story they want to tell, so it's kind of like, all of a sudden, what does it say? Nothing, really. Um, but then, of course, there is that post-credit sequence where you find out that the hate is still tethered, essentially, to Ethan. And that's furthermore explored in the second game. Um, and introducing a brief chat about the second game, because you and I have not played it in quite a while. Um, and furthermore, this is why we want to hear from people that listen to the show. You can comment uh, to us on Twitter, at Safe Room Pod to share your thoughts on uh, either the game we're talking about or the series as a whole and we'll uh, briefly mention it on the show a friend of the show uh, Harrison Abbott who's the games reporter over there for uh, Newsweek.com said uh, I never actually played the first Condemned but started with the second one and didn't really get on with it Uh, I've heard that it was a step down from its predecessor though so I should probably get around to trying the original at some point you definitely should Harrison Uh, if you didn't enjoy the second one as (laughs) kind of like Neil and I you'll definitely I think enjoy more aspects of uh, the original Condemned but that's how basically i'm going to channel his feelings on it in that the second one loses almost every single element that i like about criminal origins in favor of the full-fledged supernatural element of it which yeah. it makes sense but it furthermore is refining the element that i enjoyed the least about it which is why i don't get on with it nearly as well at well there's a reason why i've played criminal origins 3 or 4 times and i've played bloodshot once Um, It did refine the combat, which I will say, like, it furthermore made the combat unpredictable and also just the way in which Ethan handles, I think, is handled much better, Mm -hmm. right? They expand the arsenal of weapons. They expand the finishers. There's a more of an emphasis on gunplay, which I'm not thrilled about, right? Because the whole empowerment of guns is lost now because I think at one point you're finding, like, SMGs that are not only more accurate, but they deal more damage and they've got full mags almost sometimes, So, and you find explosives, I think, at one point. You find a makeshift grenade or something, which I'm just like, this is completely losing the emphasis on, like, you're a man behind enemy lines and whatnot, which that's neither here nor there. I, I suppose I understand why they leaned more into the cult aspect, because kind of once... That can of worms is open, yeah. you can't really put the lid back on that, right? It's either you're going to go back to full grounded nature, or you're just going to fully go off the rails with the supernatural. But it it just does not work for me nearly as well. I think it's also a longer game, which doesn't do it favors. And that's mostly due to what I remember being longer CSI segments that are not as hand holding and feel more like these less well-constructed sort of hunter-gatherer sections that I'm kind of just getting frustrated by the end of it because it's like there's not a lot of logic behind the layout maybe of crime scenes or it kind of just feels like, well, you got to find this one speck of blood that's behind this cabinet or this drawer. And it's like, why would that be there to begin with?
1: Yeah. I mean, back at the time, this was a game that was perceived as being the better of the two, wasn't it? But I think time has... Proven the original to be more consistent, you know, yeah. and be, I don't know, just the tone is better. You know, it's like, I'm all for, you know, I am, people are very much for things that are over the top silly and really embrace the ridiculousness in, in their story. But you've got to do it right, as I say. It has to be, even when you do something that's chaotic and nuts and, over the top, you have to have some structure in it to make it work. It is, you have to give the appearance of chaos without actually being chaos, you know, because otherwise it's like uh, a child's train of thought being, being written out as a story on a page. It's like you know, no paragraphs, nothing, just like. Like, and then this happened, and then, and then. And then he had superpowers, and then he could shout people to death. And now he could, and now there's a whole well, cult. yeah, that's... <laughs> now the president, the president is a member of this cult, and blah, 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 blah. And then it's just, yeah, it gets a bit like that, you know, and compared it, to that.
0: Yeah. It feels like one long run-on sentence, kind of, where you're just like, wait a second, once you get to a certain graph, you're just like, wait, how did we get here? Because I completely forgot that part of it, and you just mentioned it. Like, he develops... The- the thing that is making the lunatics be crazy is that there are these transmitters now that are all around Metro City that are making them go crazy, and then he has this sonic boom attack, which is almost is like that uh, ability in Skyrim yeah. where you can do that shout attack. And it's like... And what I believe also throughout the game is there are these brief stints where they try to ground it in what... They try to replicate a lot of moments from the first game. And it's almost like, well... Once you go full off the rails, you can't put the cart back on the tracks, so those moments just feel very jarring. And it's almost like, well, are you moving in this new direction? Are you trying to rekindle elements that worked in the first game? Um, I suppose I will say, though, like there is one section in that that is actually pretty terrifying, um, and that's a spoiler for Condemned 2 Bloodshot. There's a sequence where you're in a cabin out in the woods, and you're like getting chased by a bear, and the bear basically gets into the cabin, and it starts like Uh, not only, like, tearing down walls and chasing you, but it makes its way down corridors, and these little sort of, like, uh, alleyways that are behind walls and things like that, and you have to, like, dodge paw attack, like, that part is very intense, and I'm pretty sure there's no combat option, you can only run. Um, But again, like, what... (laughs) It's a game where you're shouting and you've got these, like, sonic boom abilities, and all of a sudden, like, you're in a sequence where you're getting chased by a bear. It's kind of like... They're trying to juggle too many different types of experiences in this that it kind of just feels like a hodgepodge of ideas that are lacking a direction or a cohesive direction at that.
1: Yeah, I think, and like anything, I think it really does just come down to how you feel about the first game Uh, that makes, you know, maybe then I could say then it was a different problem because I hadn't played the first game, but even now thinking about it is like having played the first game which you know is supposedly the dated one the the you know the, the weaker shallower version of that you know it's not it's the game it should be and it's not until you get towards the end where it's like you can take it or leave it it's like if you put the sequels ideas into your thinking when getting to the end of criminal origins it really really doesn't help It, it, it no. because then you're like yeah well I know what's coming now and that's just like <laughs> the bad half of this game you know if you're the camera as a whole um, but if you if you like me just go no I, I just I'm not acknowledging the sequel in this case I'm going to treat right. this ending as an ambiguous sort of ending where it could be viewed that it's just like the trauma he suffered through this experience has made him you know, has made him give in to the, the hate as much as anything else right. you know, as yeah. anyone else in this city and it's just a really badly run city uh, <laughs> and that's it and that would make more sense in a lot of ways you know, you could have that supernatural edge, and that would be a lovely subtle way of putting things but yeah the sequel kind of just blows that out of the water uh, maybe that's just a sequel problem uh, monolith maybe just Go to bowls or to the wall with the sequel ideas. I mean, it was true of Middle Earth, you know, with Shadow of War is by all rights a fantastic sequel that does so much better than, than the first game. Uh, if i got that the wrong way But yes, um, the second game is better, but they threw in all that stuff towards the end of the game, which is basically like a back and forth between you and the AI on like who dominates the landscape. Right, and it just stops feeling like the same game it just starts feeling like work you know you know certainly it takes but you know at the time it was like like, come on you you had something good going here and in that case much like with Condemned 2 which you know they threw in multiplayer because that was a big thing it's adding stuff to games that don't need to be there and it's that feels like a higher up decision
0: yeah that was my next point was that that had multiplayer that unequivocally felt tacked on, right? Yeah. Every single part of that felt tacked on. It wasn't in line with, like, what Condemned actually strives for. And there was even, there was uh, some unnamed developer from Monolith that was like, oh, we." a lot of us on the team were like, well, we wish that those resources had been dumped into the single player. Yeah. Uh, which, whether or not, if that ended up being a verifiable quote or not, like, I think everybody feels that way that's played that, right? I mean, nobody, I can't imagine there's a great Part of the audience that feels like, oh, I really, uh, I really enjoyed the multiplayer of Condemned Two Bloodshot. Like it's just, it's one of those things where I was like, well, if there was a big online community, they would have had an easier time selling a third one. And God. granted, we haven't seen a continuation of the franchise since Condemned Two, which was uh, 2008, I believe. Yeah. Um, which, understandably so, Monolith had moved on to uh, uh, Shadow Mordor and whatnot.
1: Yeah, and even then, that seems to be uh, a worrying gap. Yeah, uh, the gap between games. I know that's just a thing anyway, but has got bigger over the years you know, since. Well, since they made, for instance, *Condemned* U and to in 9 eight oh nine, they've made *Gotham City Imposters*, which just disappeared off the face of the earth. *Guardians of Middle Earth*, which is no one fucking remembers. And *Shadow of Mordor*, which again was a launch game, you know that happened to do well off the back of a good gimmick. And then Shadow of War, which suffered the fate of many of Warner Brothers games, as like higher up said, add this and you'll do well. And then they got attacked for that certain components and the microtransactions and things that shouldn't have been there, which all got reversed, of course, over time. But by that point, it's too late. And it's now been going on nearly five years since Monolith have actually put a game out, which is sad, you know.
0: Well, also, I mean, if it's been five years, let's say they want to return to their horror roots, what are they going to pick, Condemned, or are they going to pick Fear? Right. right? It's that type of thing where I would bet they would go with Fear long before they would go with something like Condemned, just in terms of, like, thinking about when you look at those two first chapters in both those series, while I enjoy both of them, I would say it's not much of a venture to say that Fear probably has a larger fan base than Condemned.
1: Yeah, and I think... Warner Brothers would be very cautious about uh, what license you know what's being done game wise because they have Dying Light two coming out which is very melee based mm-hmm. you know like yeah. like I touched on earlier you know you have the, some of the same DNA in there and you would not get Monolith doing it condemned if anything you'd hope that they were doing a third Middle Earth game which was really ambitious they were taking all their tech into that. Um, though no, I, I suspect that Nemesis system will come up in a licensed product somewhere else, and um, probably a Batman game at some point. Mm. But uh yeah, it's it'd be nice if they went back to horror. Then again, yeah, you know, they've done the Matrix before, you know, it was the Matrix online, so maybe they're secretly making one of those. Uh Matrix games, <laughs> you know. Where where they can do all their superpower bullshit and it'd be perfectly in keeping. Yeah, you know, but What better game would it be for them to do than a game where you start off in a very dreary, normal, horrible world, and everything gets progressively weirder and nutsier, and you can't quite explain why? Matrix game. There you go.
0: There you go. I think that if there was somebody to to do another Matrix game, it would definitely be them, and obviously their history, but also... That nemesis system you could see kind of flourishing within that world. Oh, uh, Smith
1: system. Imagine an agent yeah. system like that. Like the Nemesis system would just be poof.
0: one can dream. But uh yeah, I'm I'm happy that it sounds like your first uh your first dance with Condemned Criminal Origins seems to largely have been a positive one. You know? Yeah. Qualms definitely have qualms with it. It is a sixteen year old game, after all, but it's nice to hear that uh this launch title that Again, I find that to be very, just a a niche game to launch on a console, given the very specific style of horror it is, right? It's not very traditional along the lines of something like Fear. I think something like Fear would be an easier sell to a larger audience, right? It's very traditional first person in certain regards with that J-horror aesthetic that's a little more approachable, but it's just great to see that something like Condemned Criminal Origins holds up as well as it does all these years later, and it's one that, uh, You know, the future is very uncertain, but at the same time, it's nice that you're still able to go back and have relatively easy access to this game and whatnot, and that it can be experienced, uh, whether it be on Xbox or PC. But, you know, as always, Neil, it is a pleasure chatting horror with you for Safe Room. Absolutely, back at yeah. Thank you for listening to another episode of Safe Room. Please consider following and rating the show on your preferred podcast platform. And for updates on the show, follow us on Twitter at Safe Room Pod. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you guys next week.